Shalom, 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 and welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. And before we get started, I always have to give praises to the Most High Yah. He has done some wondrous things for me throughout this week, and I want to just thank him for that, and I want to just give him the praise. And if he has done something wondrous for you, may you also give him and his son, Yahushua, who died for our sins, all the praise and the glory. I'm Boyce Washington, and again, on the other side of me is the Pastor Richard Washington, and we are Psycho, the Science of the Covenant. And each week, we want to spur you to continue to read and study the scriptures, and also, for those who don't know about the covenant, to get into that Bible, to read, to understand what the covenant is, and to start back returning to the covenant. If you have any questions or comments while this podcast is live, you can email us at the science of the covenant at gmail.com. So pastor today, what are we going to be discussing as we continue on the topic of the mark of the beast? Okay. We want to continue on the mark of the beast, which, which we are uh, trying to delineate and get an understanding that, even though many are looking at the mark of the beast as a literal physical mark that is put on a person. Uh, and as I pointed out, that that may be a part of it, but I'm not understanding that from the scriptures. Man may do that. A lot of things he does, but it doesn't mean it's biblically based. And it may have some credence, but what we are trying to look at it uh, in this particular study is that the mark that we have thus far dealt with, it's a physical mark, which we deal with one's behavior, and it's a spiritual mark, and we dealt with those two last week. Now, if time permit, what we want to do is not only to deal with the, the uh, phys- physicality and the spirituality, we want to deal with two other entities of the mark. We dealt with the physical and the spiritual. So this time we want to consider the other two aspects of it. Okay. And so that's what we want to look at. We want to kind of get a a rather in-depth look at the mark rather than a surface look of somebody talking about a barcode or putting a chip into you and all of that. We we, we want to look at and see what the word of Elohim says and try to decipher uh, at least another aspect of it. And as we study the mark and we study the seal of Elohim, we'll discover avenues that not have been brought out before. And even in my discourse, I'm, I'm covering it from a certain aspect. So there are the other aspects as well. So as we get ready to go into our study, let us have a word of prayer. Eternal Father, we thank you that you have brought us together again, <clears throat> that as we study your word, that your word may be unto us, as it were, meet in due season. And it may be the water, or Heavenly Father, that be able to sanctify our souls. Thank you for each one who has come, that thou would continue to bless them. Bless those who are having difficulties and those who are going through turbulent times. Bless those, O Heavenly Father, who is searching for the truth, that they may find it. And may we who have the truth continue to witness that others who sit in darkness, they may see the light that we see. Now, bless us as we go into the word and to the study of the mark of the beast in the hand, that we may have an understanding. 
and most of all, an application in our lives that we may do what you would have us to do rather than receive the mark that we may receive your seal, that we may have your approval when you do come. These blessings we ask in the name of Yeshua and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Okay, now what we want to do here, now that we've looked at the physicality and the spirituality of the mark in the hand, let us now consider uh, another aspect of how we deal with the mark of the beast in the hand. And we want to preface our discussion by turning to at least two texts. And we want to turn to the book of uh, Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we want to look at chapter 2. And here in Genesis chapter 2, we want to look at a couple of verses. And the first one we want to look at is found in Genesis chapter 2. And we want to look at verse 7. And it reads in the seventh verse of the second chapter of the book of Genesis. And Yah Elohim formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Okay, in addition to that particular uh, passage, we also want to stay in the second book, uh, second chapter of the book of, of Genesis, and we want to also read in conjunction with that text, verse 19. And here the Bible says in verse 19, and out of the ground, Yah Elohim formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them and whatsoever Adam called every living creature. That was the name thereof. Now, what we are looking at here is that Elohim breathed into man the breath of life. And when he did so, uh, he was able to make man not only a living creature, but also when we read in verse 19, we find that Adam, when he was created, had a, a mentality uh, to be able to name the animals that he had made. So we will call this third aspect the mentality of the mark in the hand. See, again, we want to point out another part, or we want to point out another part of Adam's nature, which is that of the, his mind. See, he had, a, he had a physical nature. He had a spiritual nature. Now we're looking at his mental nature. Okay, so we want to look at that and to be able to peruse that and to see what we can uh, grasp from this particular angle of his uh, mental nature. Now, where did Adam's mind come from? Now, the Bible tells us that when Elohim breathed his breath into Adam, he became what? The Bible says he became a living soul, okay? So we see that from Elohim's spirit that in order to have life, we must have his breath of life, and that's what gives uh, us life. But, but, after, but in addition to his spirit giving life, we also recognize that in his spirit, he made Adam a living, thinking creature like his creator, just like he himself could live and think. The man that he made also possessed the same attributes of living and thinking. So 
What we are discerning about Yah's breath of life is that it contains both life and mentality. You see, without the breath of life, we cannot have life, neither could we think. So from that breath of life that he put into Adam, it not only contained life, but it also contained his ability to think. So while Yah's breath contained life, it also contained the man. In this part of our study, we want to uh, focus on the mentality of the mark in the hand. Now, the mentality of the mark in the hand, in, in the text, we are in, in the text that we have looked at, Genesis 2, 7 and 19, we are concentrating on that particular state of his mentality. They state that man was capable of thinking, reasoning, and understanding. All came from his breath. His intellectual capabilities came forth from the breath breathed into him by his creators, by the breath of Yah giving to man a man, this would mean that there is a mental state of man that has to be attended to. So if we got a man, then we have to deal with that mentality of the man. Because of the mentality of man's being, there is what we call a mental appetite. You've heard a lot of people say, and we often say, this is food for thought. Just as the physical body eats and has an appetite, so does the mental appetite has a desire for mental food. So just as there are physical and spiritual appetites, even so there is a mental appetite. And in the mental appetite, there are two cravings. And we'll probably cover one. We won't uh, probably take the two, but uh, as I write it out, we'll deal maybe with that on a later date or in in a comp in another comp composition. And these two cravings are caused by a mental hunger and a mental thirst. Now, this mental hunger uh, is the food that goes into one's physical. Uh, and one to one's mental being, and this uh, mental thirst is one that goes into his spirit. So, you know, when Yeshua he was here on earth, he said, I'm the bread of life, which meant that he was the spiritual bread to feed our, he was the mental bread as well to feed our mental hunger. And he also declared himself to be the spiritual water. And that was the Holy Spirit. And so this would mean that our mental uh, capacity or our mental thirst could be satisfied by his spirit. And that was what we call the mental water. It is these cravings of the appetite we want to examine in, the, in our study. We refer to these cravings of the appetite, respectively, as the mental hunger and the mental thirst, cravings. We call the mental hunger the appetite for the spiritual food, and the mental thirst is the, ap is the appetite for the spiritual water. Okay, 
So when we look at these cravings that we have mentally and physically, uh, they they are similar. One is looking for the physical, and the other is looking for the mental. And we also have the spiritual cravings, are looking for the spiritual uh, hunger and the spiritual thirst. So now we have the mental hunger and the mental thirst. So in the mental uh, craving is the experiencing of a psychological hunger, which produces a desire for mental uh, food. How does this uh, relate to the mark in one's right hand? When we consider the fact that mental hunger is one of the mightiest psychological needs of a mental being, when one's psychological nutritional need for mental food is not met, it can produce an ideal situation to yield to the receiving of the mark of the beast. In other words, a lot of times we yield to stuff because we're not getting the spiritual nutrients or the mental nutrients from what we are dealing with. And so when someone comes along with a false mental food, we accept it because what we have is not as great as what they are giving us. So we pointed out that there are three areas of the beast that the beast uses to coerce one into receiving the mark of the beast. And let us look at those again. And when we deal with our mental uh, cravings, we have to be aware of this. Now here we find in Revelation chapter 13, and we want to look at a, a few verses there. Revelation 13, and it says in verse 15, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, you see, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he calls it all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Okay. Now, what are the means that he used? Now, in verse 15, it says that the image of the beast uh, could speak, and that's in the legislative halls, and he could cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So one, one of the things that he does to coerce us into receiving a mark is that he puts fear in us by making a law that says he the beast should kill. He had the power to kill. Okay. And then in verse 17 of Revelation 13, it tells us further. He said, and that no man may be able to buy or sell, save he that hath the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So you got two things that you're dealing with here. You're dealing with a death decree, and you deal with prohibitions to be able to buy and sell. So these are some of the psychological things that he does with our minds in order to get us to yield to the mark that he they is making. Okay. So when we look at the uh, when we look at the the decree, which is a death decree, and we look at the prohibitions. In other words, he had the death decree, and then he had two prohibitions. And the prohibitions are they cannot buy and they cannot sell. So what we have is a death decree 
uh, and prohibitions which support one another. The death decree looks to the prohibitions to bring about death, and the prohibitions looks toward the death decree to bring about death. So either way you go, they are saying, if you can't buy and sell, you're going to get death. And then we also have a death decree. So these are some of the things that work upon our mental minds. And if we allow this to come into our minds, that we can't buy or sell, and there's a death decree up, upon us, then what is the natural thing that we will do? Well, we will accept the mark of the beast. Because then we can buy and we can sell, and we may feel comfortable. But then... When we put the mark of the beast in our hands and do the things that we shouldn't, then we blot out Elohim from being the Elohim to us that he can be if we accept it. So with the death decree and the prohibitions staring a person in the face who refuses to accept the mark mentally, one may choose because of the fact that he has the de death decree and the prohibitions before him, one may still choose to accept the, uh, the mark in one's mind by violating one's conscience. See, when we know something is wrong and we go against it, we violate our conscience. And when our conscience is uh, prompting us not to accept the mark, but many because they have not anchored themselves in the seal of Elohim and to know what his protection is and to know what he's going to do, they yield to the mark. And when they yield to the mark, that blots out the seal from Elohim. And as a result, they put themselves on the satanic grounds. So let's explore this concept, what we refer to as the mental mark in the right hand. We will call this part of our study the mental mark in the hand. So when we talk about the mental mark in the hand, for many individuals, when it comes to a mark in one's hand, they only look at a literal mark, a literal physical mark. As we pointed out, there may be some kind of physical mark that may be used. However, for our study, we aren't concerning ourselves with this kind of mark. In this study, of our, in this part of our study, we want to focus in on the mental mark in the hand. And we refer to the mental mark as a mental as a mental mark in the hand, which means to a large extent that there is a mental mark in conjunction with the symbolism of a hand. See, when it says you receive the mark in the hand, there's some symbolism that goes along with the hand. As we discussed in both the physical and the spiritual marks that had <clears throat> that a hand is a symbol of one's labor or work. So when we talk about a hand, it's not just a literal hand. We're talking about a person's work or a person's labor. That's what a hand represents. Let us consider this symbolic use of the hand with the mental mark, and we'll refer to this symbolic hand, which is the labor or the work of, that one does. We will refer to this portion of our study as the mental labor of the hand, and we'll call it the mental hand activity. So when we look at the mental uh, hand activity, we want to see what has the hand been designed for, okay? When we speak about the mark of the beast being our labor or work activity, 
it has to do with what the labor represents rather than some actual physical, literal mark put on one's right hand. So just how does this mental label work with the mark of the beast in the right hand? In looking at the association of the mind and the labor, let us consider what we call the history of labor. And we'll call this the mental history of labor. Okay, the mental history of labor. When we consider the mental history of man's labor, we are given some indications as to our labor which was given to us by Elohim and the purpose by which he gave uh, us labor. Okay, now we want to turn back to Genesis chapter 2. And here in Genesis chapter 2, we want to consider uh, verse number 15. Genesis 2.15 reads this way. In the 15th verse of the second chapter of Genesis says, And Yah Elohim took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now here in this text, it is pointing out to us that Elohim put Adam into his home in Eden's garden to till and to keep it. He would till the ground and to be able to keep it. Now, he was to work the garden and he was to preserve it. It would be rather reasonable to say that Adam was to labor as did his maker. When we think in terms of Adam being made in the image of his maker, this image extends to man's labor. Just as Elohim labored, so would the man he created reflect in his labor the image of his maker. Moreover, after Adam transgressed Yah's covenant by eating of the forbidden tree, he was not only resting under a physical and a spiritual curse of being able to get his food by physical and spiritual work, but he was also resting under a mental curse of being able to get his mental food by mental labor. Prior to transgression, Adam's labor was used to promote Yah's image of work on earth. Remember when Yeshua was down on earth, he said, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Adam was to keep the earth like Elohim was to keep heaven. In other words, earth was to be a little heaven. Uh, it was to be a little heaven on earth. Because when we think about the image of Elohim, most of the time we think about how Adam looked. But we must understand that the reason why Adam made, uh, either why uh, Elohim made Adam in his image, because he not only wanted him to look like him, but he, we, he also wanted him to be able to perform like he performed. He wanted his activity to be like his activity, because all of the activity that Elohim performed was of the creative powers to be able to preserve and to make life in a perfect situation. And therefore, he put him in a perfect garden to help him to keep it 
And in order to do that, he must be in the image of Elohim to work like Elohim worked. So a part of Yah's image was man's labor. By Adam being made in Elohim's image, this also meant that he, like his maker, would mimic Yah's activity. Thus, man's labor was also in Elohim's likeness, just as Elohim labored, Adam followed suit. Mental labor entails not just the thoughts of Yah, but also to whom one is thinking about. So as Adam worked with the garden, he was also thinking about his creator and maker. And we must understand that when Elohim ceased to work on the seventh day and made it the Sabbath day, then Adam, he was to work six days and also to rest on the Sabbath day. So we can see that Adam, even at the beginning of creation, he also had the seal of Elohim. So Adam not only carried out his labors like his maker, but also for his maker. See, he labored like his maker, but he was also doing it for his maker. Consequently, to have the mental mark of the beast is for our mental labor to be transferred from the image of Elohim to the image of the beast and receive the mark of the beast in the hand. And in doing this transference from the labor of Elohim to the labor of the beast would be mentally mimicking the works of Satan and laboring for him. When one abstains from laboring on Sunday by paying homage to the image of the beast, by honoring the first day of the week as sacred, would be a mentality set on doing the will of Rome. And to engage in labor of a secular nature on the truce Shabbat will demonstrate a disloyalty to the creator of the heaven and the earth. Such, such disloyalty to our creator shows whose our minds are on and who we serve. Furthermore, when we depart from the seal of Yah and receive the mark of the beast in the right hand, it is not without mental consequences. When we accept the pseudo Shabbat in place of the true Shabbat, we are eating evil and drinking damnation to our souls. Our minds will be left to mental cravings of hungering and thirsting for true bread of life and the pure water of life. Receiving the mark of the beast causes a starvation and a drought in our mind. We may be physically fed and nourished if we take on the mark of the beast, but spiritually and mentally, we will experience being famished and dehydrated mentally of the mental nutrients we need. Now that we have observed the physicality and the spirituality and the mentality, let us now concern ourselves with the fourth aspect, which is found in Genesis chapter 2. Now, I want to go back to Genesis chapter 2. And we want to deal with our fourth aspect of the four L or the four aspects we were talking about of the mark of the beast. Now, here in Genesis, 
we want to look at chapter two and we want to consider verses, uh, we want to consider verse 18 and then we want to look at verses 20 to 23. So let us start with verse 18 of the second chapter of Genesis. In verse 18, it reads thusly, And Yah Elohim said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. Now we go on down to verses 23, I mean verses 20 to 23. In verse 20 it says, And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field, and for Adam there was not found and helped me for him. And Yah Elohim caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And he and the rib which Yah Elohim had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Now, here we read in these verses that Adam was alone, and Yah made him a woman by extracting one of Adam's ribs, what we see in this scenario of making a woman for man is that Yah created man to be a social creature. Yah himself said when he created Adam that it was not good that man should be alone. Let us at this juxtaposition consider the social mark in the hand of the uh, 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 of the beast in the hand that the uh, that the beast is trying to put on it, the people, and we will call this fourth aspect the soci sociality of the mark in the hand. So we had the physicality, the spirituality, and the mentality. Now we have the sociality of the mark in the hand, and we have read how Elohim created man to be a social creature. Again, we are pointing out another area of man's makeup, which is social. Where did Adam's social being come from? When Elohim said in verse, in chapter uh, one, in verse 26, he said this, it says in verse 26 of the first chapter of Genesis, and Elohim said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And then he goes on to say in verse 27, and Elohim created man in his own image. In the image of Elohim created he him, male and female created he them. So prior to creating the man and the woman, Yah, Yah, Yah said uh, in verse 26, let us make man in our image. So even before he made uh, uh, Adam and Eve, he said, let us make them in our image. Okay. So prior to creating man and the woman, Yah 
and his son were already in a social relationship. Because when you say let us, that means that there's more than one individual. So we know that when he created the world, it was both Elohim and his son who created the universe. Therefore, Adam and Eve were modeling after the father and his son. They were social beings of whom their social uh, behavior and social life was modeling after Elohim. You see, Elohim, uh, when he was in his creation, he didn't say, let me make man. He said, let us make man. So Elohim had already established what we call the social nature of man. And as he, uh, and, and therefore, uh, they were social beings of whom their social nature created in the image of Elohim. In this section of our study, we want to focus on the sociality of the mark in the hand. Now, the sociality of the mark in the hand, in the text that we have just uh, been concentrating upon, they state that man and woman were capable of associating, congregating, and integrating. Their interaction or their interaction ability came forth from the creator making them from the same body. By the woman coming from the same body of her man, they were both sharing of themselves, not just to another person. But the other person was a part of they themselves. Because of the sociality of man's men, there is what we call a social appetite. See, we have a social appetite. Just as there is a physical, spiritual, and mental appetite, even so, there is a social appetite. And in the social appetite, there are two cravings. These two cravings are caused by social hunger and social thirst. This social hunger is a desire for social food, and this social thirst is a desire for social water. It is these cravings of the appetite that we want to examine in this study. We will refer to these cravings as the appetite, respectively, as the social hunger and the social thirst. These cravings that we have socially, we would call the social hunger, we will look at the social hunger and the social thirst. So when we look at the social hunger, Craving is the experiencing of a social hunger which produces a desire for socialization. How does the socialization relate to the mark of the beast in one's right hand? When we consider the fact that social hunger is one of the mightiest sociological needs of a social being, when one's sociological nutritional need for social intercourse is not met, it can produce an ideal situation to yield to the receiving of the mark of the beast. You see, some people, the reason why they yield to error 
is not so much that they don't think is wrong, but they cannot go against their nature to be able to be with others. Some people are socialites. They always have to have people and individuals around them to feel like they are somebody. This is why when you, a lot of time when you see mega churches with a lot of people, it might not be simply because they have the truth or don't have the truth, but they are going there because they feel that they need a social life. And because there are many individuals, they go there. And a lot of people, they shine smaller congregations because they don't feel like they have enough, enough social life around them to go into the church, even though the church may have truth. So some people measure truth by how many, and they measure error by how few. But that, that's, that does not, not always work. Because in Noah's day, the many did not have the truth, and the, and, the, and the few, they had the truth. So we pointed out that there are three areas of the beast uses to coerce one into receiving the mark of the beast, namely by a death decree and by prohibitions forbidding to buy and to sell. With the death decree, the prohibitions confronting a person who opposes the threat of the mark one may choose to accept the mark of the beast if there aren't any social ties whereby one can be supported by others. In other words, a lot of people that if they don't have people supporting them in truth or supporting them in something, they would rather to accept error and to have support rather to, than to stand alone with truth. Let's explore this concept in what we refer to as the social mark of the right hand and we will call this aspect of our study the social mark in the hand. The social mark in the hand. For many individuals, when it comes to a mark in one's hand, they only look at a literal physical marking of some kind, which is like branding an animal or like a tattoo of some sort. This may be done, but for our understanding, this isn't what we are considering as the mark. In this part of our study, we want to scrutinize the social mark in the hand. We refer to the social mark as, this, as the mark in the hand, which means that there is a social mark which can be associated to the hand. As we deal with the physical, as we dealt with the physical, the spiritual, and the mental hand uh, connection, there is also a social mark that a hand portrays. As we have been able to see the hand as a symbol of work or labor of some kind, let us discover how our work or labor adjoins itself to our social nature, we will take the symbolic understanding of the hand with the social nature by pointing out how our work and our social life influence one another. We'll refer to this section of our study as the social labor of the hand, and we'll call it the social hand activity. When we speak of the mark of the beast in our labor or work activity, it has to do with what 
the labor represents rather than some actual mark like a barcode or a brand of some sort in one's right hand. As we view the assimilation of the social with the work or labor, let us consider what we call the history of labor, the social history of labor. When we consider the history of man's labor, we are given in Scripture some understanding as to what our labor was given to us for. So when we have a labor of our hands, what was that given to us for? All right, let us turn into Genesis chapter 3. And we want to look at a verse or two here in Genesis chapter 3. Now, here's what we notice in Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yah Elohim had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath Elohim said, Ye should not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, here in this passage of Scripture, we are told that Eve was having a conversation with the serpent. From their conversation, she was enticed to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And notice what the Bible says here. In verse 2 of the third chapter of Genesis, it said, Then the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the tree, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, Elohim has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For Elohim does know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Okay, so what we are experiencing here, after eating, she shared with her husband the fruit. For the Bible says in verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took up the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So here she had shared something uh, with her husband that was against the covenant of Elohim. And after Eden, she shared this fruit with her husband, who also ate of it. And from this, we can perceive that Adam's laboring in the Edenic garden was to be a joint venture. Adam and his wife were to work together in their Eden home. In, 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 in Exodus, uh, not Exodus, but in Genesis 2.18, uh, when it says, And Yah Elohim said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. So when we look at that, we are given Adam's, we are given Eve's purpose for being a wife to Adam. See? There are at least two things that we are addressing here. First, it was saying here that uh, it is not good for man to be alone, and he would give him a helpmate. So there are two things we are dealing with here. First, 
she was given to him so that he wouldn't be alone. Because Elohim says he wanted man to be a social creature. He did not want him to be alone. So that was the first thing why Eve came on the scene, so that Adam would not be alone. And the second thing was so that she could be an helpmeet for him. So she was to be a helpmeet. In other words, when he worked in the garden, she was to work along his side. She was to be Adam's helper in their garden home. They were to labor together to dress and to keep the garden. So here we are to see that their labor was to be a shared responsibility. And this shared responsibility was a social sociableness to go along with their labor. In other words, when they labor, they were to do it sociably. And oftentimes when you labor with someone else, it makes it more enjoyable. So what we are seeing here, when we think in terms of Adam and Eve being made in the image of their creators, we must include a part of their image as being of a social interaction. Now, when we read, when we read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, notice what it says. In verse 27 of the first chapter of Genesis, it said, And Elohim created man in his image. In the image of Elohim created he him, male and female created he them. Now, just as Elohim and his son worked together in creation, even so were they to work together in the garden. Adam and Eve was working together in their garden home is what we would call true social work. Moreover, after Adam and Eve transgressed Yah's word by partaking of the forbidden fruit, they were not only resting under a physical, spiritual, and mental curse, but also under a social curse. And being under such a curse, their social food would be obtained by labor. Now, note, let us notice in Genesis 3.16. In Genesis 3.16, it reads, it says, And unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And now he says in verse 17, And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Curse is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So prior to transgression, Adam's and Eve's labor was used to promote Yah's image of work on earth. A part of Yah's imaging was man's ability to labor as did his creators. By them being made in their creator's image, this also meant that they, like their maker, would mirror Yah's activity. Thus, man's labor was also in Elohim's likeness. Just as Elohim labored, Adam and Eve did the same. Social labor entails not just the thoughts 
of Yah, but also to whom we socialize with. Adam and Eve not only carried out their labors like their maker, but also for their maker. Consequently, to have a to have the social mark of the beast is for our social labor to be transferred from the image of Elohim to the image of the beast and receive the mark of the beast in the hand. And in this transference from laboring for Elohim to the laboring of the beast would be socially mirroring the works of Satan and laboring for his cause. When we abstain from work on Sunday by paying homage to the image of the beast and honoring the first day of the week as sacred, to do so would be a sociality of life set on doing the will of Rome. When we engage in labor of a circular nature on the true Shabbat, we'll demonstrate a disloyalty to our creator of heaven and earth. So disloyalty to our maker shows whose our associations are with and who we serve. Furthermore, when we depart from the seal of Yah and receive the mark of the beast in the right hand, it is not without social consequences. When we accept a pseudo-Shabbat over the true Shabbat, we are eating and drinking damnation to our souls. Our associations will be left to social cravings of hunger and thirsting for the true fellowship with his true people and communion with his pure Holy Spirit. Receiving the mark of the beast causes a loneliness and a solitude in our social soul. We may be physically fed and nourished if we take the mark of the beast. We are spiritually separated from Yeshua and alienated from Yah's spirit if we receive the mark of the beast. We are mentally famished for the written word of Elohim and dehydrated from the lack of the spoken word of Yah if we receive the mark of the beast. Even so, we may social, socially be separated from the sanctification of the saints and alienated from the anointing of the Messiah if we receive the mark of the beast. So socially, many will receive the mark of the beast because they are alienated from the saints, but they receive the benefits temporarily in this world that they want. But for those of us socially who rejects the mark of the beast, we may be alienated even from the saints that we are with and be isolated. But if we hold on and be true to Elohim, eventually the temporary isolation will be nothing like the eternal separation from Elohim 
what we experience in this world will be temporarily, but then we'll have an eternal sociality with Elohim. So what we have been looking at is the social, is the physicality, the social, the spirituality, the mentality, and the sociality of the mark of the beast. So we'll stop there and. Uh, Next week, we'll consider another, perhaps, avenue of the mark of the beast uh, further. So, uh, I have a question in regards to Genesis 3.16. Yeah. Where it states, he shall rule over you, mm -hmm. um, meaning the man shall rule over the woman. Mm -hmm. Was there a different type of... Uh, dynamic there before they ate the apple to why he does said then that the man should rule over the woman you saying was well, a different dynamic that before they ate yeah and then after they ate it changed where Yah said okay he's going to rule over you yeah that was a different dynamic uh, in other words um uh, the change came in uh, after sin mm -hmm. uh, exemplified itself. But it's interesting when you look at the word when he says he's going to rule over you because a lot of people say that that type of rule uh, has to do with the woman uh, yelling to the man yeah. uh, totally. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the word, the Hebrew word that is for rule here is different from a mandatory and a dogmatic rule that I say something, you do it. Mm -hmm. That's uh, this word here come from the word uh, marshal, mm -hmm. uh, the Hebrew word marshal. Matter of fact, usually when we have police in a city, they may have city and state police, but they also have uh, a county police, which we call a marshals. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that, that word for marshal uh, was not a dictatorial rule that she Eve would not have any freedom. That was not what it was saying. What it was saying that he would rule over you in a sense that it would be a fair rule. It would not be something dogmatic or depressive. Mm -hmm. Because as you can see that when you go through the Bible, uh, that he was not talking about a dogmatic rule because when you look at Abraham, a lot of times Sarah was telling Abraham what to do. Mm-hmm especially when uh, she had to put Hagar out of her house. And then Elohim said to Abraham, do what your wife says, put her out. <laughs> you, mm -hmm. you follow what I'm saying? So it was a type of rule that was, it was a humanitarian. It was a type of rule that was fair and was a type of rule that uh, was a, a loving rule, just like the Bible says in the book of Ephesians. He said, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So with that loving rulership, uh, she was to be under her, her husband under this loving type of rulership. So it wasn't a dogmatic type thing where you do as I say is more of you, uh, almost kind of like a leader. Mm -hmm. a yeah, it's, it's a lot, sort of like, you know, in a military, you may have a chief in command, but that chief in command is if he's the type of chief that he's looking out for his men, he wouldn't allow them uh, to just go out on the battlefield without any super, 
without any supervision and to know what a, a soldier is capable of doing and not capable of doing. Uh-huh. Or sometimes some some soldiers are not be as mature as others, then there are certain battles he can't put them in. But then those older and mature soldiers, he may can put them in, a, in, in certain battles. Uh-huh. So what we're looking at is when we talk about the rulership is basically and able to say, hey, uh, you're going to be under your husband, but in being under him, you're going to be up on a, a, a just rule. You also said that uh, Adam was to keep earth like Yah kept heaven. Mm-hmm. So is that almost kind of saying that earth was supposed to be or was kind of like a little heaven at the time before sin entered the world? Mm-hmm. Because really, when you uh, let, let, now that you raise that question, let, let's look at uh, something. Uh, now, when we look in uh, Genesis chapter two, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that you raise that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you look at Genesis chapter two, here the Bible says, uh, "Let me see," and let me see here. Uh, sorry, in, in verse 5, Genesis 2, 5 says, uh, it says, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for Yah Elohim had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. And he says, But there went up, a mist from the earth and watered the whole ground. Okay, so now what what we're seeing here is that before Adam came on the scene, Lord, he, he had already prepared the ground and the soil, mm-hmm. and he also had what they call geysers, uh, water. That, the water didn't come down from heaven that watered. It came up from the earth itself to water the ground. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now the thing that I'm look looking at is is that when he had that, then where where did those where did those plants come from that was on the earth? Okay. Now we know that in Genesis one it says that uh, he made the ground to bring forth, you know, plants and all of that. Mm-hmm. But the Bible says he says, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth. Uh-huh. Now, now, if he said he got every plant in the field before it was in the earth, where was it? Uh-huh. So now I'm thinking that he got these plants from heaven and he planted them on earth. Uh-huh. Because uh-huh. this word, he, because when you deal with the word plant uh-huh. uh, in the Hebrew, uh, it's like, it's like he took a, it's like he took the whole part of uh of uh, of a, he took a whole garden itself from heaven and he planted the whole garden down here on earth. Okay. Now, when you read in the book of Revelation, it says that it it talks in the book of Revelation about the tree the tree of life. Mm-hmm. Now, what was the tree of life? That was one of the trees that was in the garden, along with the tree of knowledge and the good and evil. So, if he took took this garden from heaven and put it on earth. And then after the flood or whatever happened, he took it back to heaven. Then it leads me to believe 
it first started in heaven, and then he planted it here on earth. Mm-hmm. So if that's if that be the case, then what we are look, looking at is that earth plants came from heaven. So if it came from heaven, it can go back to heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, if it if he planted all of that on earth, then that means that when they when they they were they were to dress and to keep it, mm-hmm. then it, it, it somehow suggests this fact that Elohim saying, just like I keep my garden in heaven, I want you to keep your garden on earth. Yeah, it seems to suggest that very strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it's interesting too, uh, how you was talking earlier too about how Satan does things to work on the mental minds. Mm-hmm. And we saw this during the pandemic because people were panicking when they said, Oh, you can't get in with a mask or oh, you can't get in with the vaccine. And I think it's just a small thing he's doing to prep mm-hmm. for the bigger one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but it's it's very interesting that uh, he first starts with the mental, you know, playing with your mind, you know, to kind of get you discouraged that you will, you know, mm-hmm. want to get whatever he dishes out because you don't want to reap the consequences of what mm-hmm. may happen, be it death or you know, mm-hmm. unable to buy or sell to make any money mm-hmm. or to grow food or whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. and all. But it's also interesting too that how people don't really see that Yah gives us a choice, rather, and it, and it's up to us whether we take a, um, whether it's good or bad, whether we go for him or the mm-hmm. other. He doesn't force us one way or the other, but. Satan is forceful and a dictator, and he's not even loyal to his own people. Right. You know, and I don't see how people can see that a lot, you know, in this day and age. Well, uh, that that just, uh, well, there's a number of factors going on. People are so, so trained to follow that sometimes they don't use their individual mind. They just, they just, they just follow. And then a lot of that following has to do with whether a person's been anchored in the scriptures. In other words, you can just you can go to church on a consistent basis, but that doesn't mean that you're in the Bible. It means that you may carry the Bible and you go here and there, but you have not really taken the Bible and made an application of the principles in your life to be able to know what's right and what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And so if that is not being done, that means that if your main news is coming from the uh, internet and television and they tell you on the news and you haven't connect the news with Bible prophecy and they tell you something, you just do it mm-hmm. because that's what you're used to doing. You're not used to getting into the scriptures and saying, well, wait a minute, is this right or, or is this wrong? Did Elohim tell me to do it or is man telling me to do it? Mm-hmm. So if you get caught up on what man does, that means that even when, the Marcus beast is being presented, then you're so in tune with man that you are, you're not understanding what man is telling you to do something in violation to the word. Yeah. Now, if you understand it and you're still in violation of, of it, then 
and you still do it, then you got to mark in your hand. Your behavior is showing who you who you follow. Mm-hmm. True. So true. Well, uh, I think with that we will transition to the next segment. Okay. Up next is let's talk about that. Today in Let's Talk About It, I want to talk about black people being killed and protection from Yah or God. Um, if you, we read in 2 Samuel, the 22nd chapter, verse 3 and 4, it reads, The Elohim of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield. And the horn of my Yeshua, or the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I will call on Yahuwah, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Uh, as we know, just a few weeks ago, 10 black people was killed at the hand of a white racist in Buffalo, New York. And... Also, just not too long ago in Phoenix, Arizona, a black woman was strangled to death by a white man on a bus. And, you know, some people will ask and say, well, where is God in these situations? And one of my questions is, with all this going on, do we still have covering from the most high? And if so, why are these things still going? Are we still under the curse? Possibly. You know, with with uh in with some of our people being taken out the way they have been. And you don't see other races uh, just as much as they sign an Asian hate bill. You don't see Asians being slaughtered and killed in the streets. You don't see Ashkenazis being uh, shot, killed in the streets. You don't see really Mexicans or Latinos killed in the streets. But you are seeing still uh, a lot of black folk being killed in the streets. Now, could it also be just a narrative that they want to create a division between black and white or between blacks and other races here? Or is there something bigger at hand? In all? Okay, well, I think you got a, let me see, I'm not sure. You got a number of questions on the floor. Which one you want to start with? Well, uh, let's, let's uh, basically, it, do black people have a protection from the most high? Uh, especially the ones that are uh, Hebrew. Well, uh, let's, let's kind of look at it. Um, because, see, when we said, do you have protection, uh, you know, from the most high, uh-huh. uh, there's, 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 there's quite a few factors, you know, in, in there. I don't think we can be so simplistic, you know, as to say that no blacks will, you know, be killed or, or black Hebrews will be killed simply uh-huh. because they may be following the covenant. And then we have to also look at the fact that are they bl- they may be black Hebrews. I don't know, because when Elohim scattered his people all over the world, he did not only scatter the what we call the black Hebrews, but he told Egypt, I'm going to scatter you on, uh, to the four corners, too. Oh, really? 
Oh yeah, that's in the scriptures. Yeah, he 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 didn't just scatter those. He anybody that didn't not follow his will, he was scattering. So he but scattered the, point, the Hamites also. Uh, so he also scattered the Hamites. Yeah, well, see, when you trace the um, the Hamitic people, then uh, down from Ham, you have the Cush, mm-hmm. Mizraim, Foot and Put, and all all of those different nations. Mm-hmm. You know that they they were also scattered. A lot of them that they may not have been scattered. Uh, because of church, but they may have been scattered because of the fact that many of them intermarriages, and so they went into other geographical areas. But the yeah. point what I'm trying to get at is is that I, I can't be really too simplistic. Uh, there have been there have been whites who have been been shot down, uh-huh. but uh, I think currently what we are seeing on the news is what 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 we are seeing doesn't mean no other ethnicity is being taken out mm-hmm. you know but it does mean that this is this is what this is what we are seeing at this time yeah and so a lot of times what we see is what we react to mm-hmm. but it does not necessarily mean that other uh, groups are not experiencing what we are experiencing there was a time when white uh, uh, reporters were over in, in Iraq uh, you know or Iran and these people, and they were killing whites over there, and I think they were not killing blacks. Mm-hmm. So in different parts of the world, there are different things going on with different ethnicities. Okay, so is there a sure uh, proof, or uh, is there a sure way that we can be protected? You know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not sure if we can say factually that every person of color that gets killed by pro- police brutality or 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 a woman being uh, killed by uh, other uh, ethnicity is because of the lack of protection of Elohim mm-hmm. okay now life uh, even among our own people okay life even among our own people, we still, if you go to the courts today, they may not be telling you, mm-hmm. but you got a lot of uh, black-on-black crime. True. You got a lot of white-on-white crime, True. okay? But it's not hitting the news as much as when you see uh, policemen uh, kill who of uh, one ethnicity who kill somebody of a, of a, a necessity. Uh, ethnicity, mm-hmm. you, you you know they're not playing it up, but for the mere fact that you got uh, on the docket or uh, many judges got many cases on the books where there have been foul play, but I, I think in order to cover all of, of what we say is foul play within the race itself, let alone outside of different ethnicities doing something against another group. I don't even know if you could report to report all of that. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, now uh, I want, uh, I want to bring out uh, 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 something in the scriptures too. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to bring something to scripture. I want, I want us to turn to, uh, let's turn to book of Luke, the book of Luke. And in the book of Luke, the 13th chapter, I want to point out something here. Okay, now, if, if, if uh, let me see, 
you want to read read for us in our hearing Luke chapter 13 and I want you to read verses 1 through 5 and then we're going to comment on that okay and it reads Luke chapter 13 verse 1 through 5 mm-hmm. there were present at that season some that told him of the Galilean whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices and Yahusha answering said unto them suppose ye that these Galilean were sinners above all the Galilean because they suffered such things. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Shiloh fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Okay, now, uh, when you read that scripture, now, there are some lessons in, in this. Mm-hmm. In other words, the Galileans, no doubt, you know, they came to Yeshua and said, you know, look what uh, uh, look what Pilate did, you know, how he, how he, how he slew them and mingled the sacrifice with their blood. And they dropped to Yeshua and said, well, you know, I guess in the question that we are dealing with is how come these people, how come they weren't protected? Mm-hmm. You know, what happened? And they was bringing to Yeshua. And I guess out of the fact that uh, they want to know what he had to say about it, because if Pilate had done this to them, these Galileans, then what protection do we have? Mm-hmm. But the way he responded was, he said, suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans, he said, because they suffered these things. Mm-hmm. See, he's putting a question out there. Do you think they were sinners because they suffered it? He said, no. He said, the thing that you got to understand is, he said, I tell you, n- no. He said, not that they were sinners above anybody else. He said, nay. Mm-hmm. He said, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So what is he saying? He is saying, you got to live your life that no matter what happened, mm-hmm. that you got to be able to know that you in good steads with the, with, with the maker. So if they got killed, you know, it's not so much that they didn't have the protection, but the fact is that a, a lot of times in human power, what happens is that Elohim does not stop another person from killing another person. Uh-huh. Just like he didn't stop Cain from killing Abel. He could have, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. He didn't stop Herod uh, from killing John the Baptist, but he allowed it. Mm-hmm. And so here we find in these people, they are coming and saying, Pilate didn't mingle their, their blood with the sacrifice. But Elohim saying, yeah, on, on this short-term basis, yes. He said, but the main thing that you have to consider is that are you in harmony with your maker? He said, because if you aren't, and if you don't repent, he said, you shall all likewise perish. And then it was an accident that happened. They said the pool of Ceylon, it fell down. And when it fell down, it sl- slew some sinners. Uh-huh. And, and he approached it the same way. He said, because they had a car accident or they this pool drowned them and, and killed them, it didn't mean that they were sinners more so because this thing happened to them. 
He said, but except you repent. In other words, live a life of repentance that you don't have to perish forever. Mm, But in this world, sometimes it's going to be a freak accident that's going to take you out. Mm -hmm. Or it could be evil people that would take you out. Sometimes when there are evil people, Elohim put up a protection and sometimes he doesn't. Mm. Now, I don't have the wisdom to know when he will and what he want. Uh But what Yeshua is saying in these two examples, okay, if you don't know when or what might happen, then it's best for you to live a life of repentance. And if you live that life, then you're okay. But if he said, if you don't live that life of repentance, he says, y'all all going to like last parish just like these folk. Mm. Okay. So now just the other day, <laughs> you, you talk about ethnicity, uh, different races and being unprotected. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm going to the store and I'm coming out and getting my vehicle. And I hear somebody banging against my Mr. car door. Uh-huh. And when I looked over there, I let down the window and I said, sir, uh, you know, I'm trying to pull out and, you know, y- your door is hitting my car. And it looked like he didn't hear. So I rolled the window all the way down and told him, and he got all indignant. He said, well, I got to put my grandson in the, car, in the car seat. And he said, if you had a park, right, you, you, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't have had a problem. Uh-huh. I said, well, sir, if you had to pull your car over or closer to where you were, you, you, you probably wouldn't have had that problem. Uh-huh. And but he got all indignant, and then he finally got it in. He jumped in his car and he drove off. Of course, I got his license plate and everything. And then when he drove off, he looked like he was in such such a such a hurry. Now my point is this: uh, when we look at things of police brutality, we look at it from different races being exploited. Uh-huh. But in your own race, that in your own race, you got people that they may be Hebrews and they don't even know it. Yeah, but. You know, if I had a if I had a gun, which I don't believe in carrying guns, I might have taken him out. Mm-hmm. And if he keep on doing what he's doing, somebody might take him out. Let's see. But but mm-hmm. my point being is that we don't know when you're gonna be taken. But yeah. what type of life are we living? And if we live the best we can, I think for the mere fact that we have come to where we are, he must have given us some protection because we could have been a statistic too. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when I, the reason why I wanted to kind of talk about this too was uh, someone had made a post uh, on, on one of the, these Hebrew sites uh, and they had posted, the, you know, about the killings of the blacks uh, at the hands of white men. And one of them was saying, you know, we need to start arming ourselves with weapons. But um I guess my thing is this. If, if I feel like I'm in too tuned to the most high, why would I need to arm myself with weapons? Um, because I'm, I'm not sure, but when y'all brought the Israelites out of Egypt, um, I just wonder, did any of those people in the time between they left Egypt and they entered the promised land, did they get killed? Or did Yah have his protection over them? Well, I think at that time it was a theocracy. Now, theocracy is when uh, all of Elohim's people were in one place at one time. That's a true theocracy. Mm -hmm. But now 
we don't have what you call a true theocracy because Elohim got his people scattered all over the world. Yeah. Okay. So uh, he 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 can fight for us individually, but not collectively because mm. we everywhere. Okay. So when you look at the fact that uh, when they was in the wilderness, did he um, did did he, did he protect all of them? Yes, he did. Because what we see here is that number one. When they went into the promised land, they ran in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when they got in the promised land, they didn't believe that they could uh, accomplish it. And they weren't dependent upon Elohim to do it for them. They would depend upon themselves. And they said, we look like grasshoppers in, the, in, in their sight. So when they came back with a negative report, only two people came back with a positive report that we can take, take, the, take the land that you promised. And that was Caleb and Joshua. And but the other ten who went over, they out talked Caleb and Joshua, and says we, you know, that no, we are not able. We are, we look like grasshoppers in their sight. So Elohim told told Moses, he says, because of their unbelief, he says, they will not get into the to the promised land. They could have been in the promised land in forty days, but he said, now every day that you over there, I'm gonna give you a year that you're gonna be in the wilderness forty years. And he says, when 40 years came around, everyone that was a part of that group, they dropped dead in the wilderness. But the offspring that they had, they were able to go with Joshua over into the promised land. So my point is being this is, yes, he gave them the protection. Not one died other than what was permitted. Now, during that time, we know that, you know, Miriam, she died and Aaron, he died, Uh you know, and then Moses, because he smoked a rock and shouldn't have done it. He also died in, mm-hmm. in the wilderness, but that was not at the hand of the perpetrators. That was Elohim mm-hmm. telling them, because what you did, Moses, you're not going to get in the promised land. Yeah. And so he protected all of them, but the ones that disbelieved, they dropped dead in the wilderness, and then only those who believed, they, who were not aware of what, what their fathers were doing, Elohim didn't hold them accountable uh-huh. But when they got ready to go the second time under Joshua, then they believed and they were able to get in the land. So he can protect. He did protect all of them while they were out there in the wilderness. Uh-huh. But because of their sin, they did not see the promised land. So I just wonder then if it if there is possibly a second exodus and he gathers all his chosen from the four corners. And from my readings in scripture, once, once that is done, uh, all the Hebrews who had neglected the covenant is going to apologize and, you know, be sorrowful of all the sinful, not only what they've done, but the ancestors. And they would get it back right with the most high. And I'm just wondering then with that protection that was over Israel when they were came out of Egypt and going into the promised land, will that be reinstituted again? Because we all will be in one place again. Well, I'm not sure if all going to be in one place again, because even, even when you get a knowledge of the Hebrews, Uh it will all of the Hebrews get the same knowledge at one time that they would be so astute to do that. And it speaks about, those who oppressed us, that they will, you know, become our servants and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Uh, 
it's a lot of uh, things that have to be put in put in place. I know it sounds good, and I hear people saying, "Oh, they're going to be our slaves." But I mean, is this going to be this side of eternity? And if it is going to be on this side of eternity, this would this this would mean that somebody would have to come into a knowledge of that. Uh-huh. And so I think as the covenant is more and more being spread to the world more people may come into a knowledge of that. But for me to say that uh, all of a sudden next week, because we've been preaching the covenant or there are those out here are, are preaching this covenant uh-huh. that all of a sudden we're going to get the protection. They're going to become our servants. So I'm saying, I don't, I don't think so, but I think but, they have to be a prophetical fulfillment that uh-huh. uh, the time is coming that more of the people who have been scattered around the world, will get a knowledge of what his covenant is and come back to that knowledge. But when that will be, I don't know. So I believe the scriptures are telling us the truth about it, but I think there has to be a condition to bring that about. And I don't think that at this time that the condition is there. Yeah, no, I don't think so at this time. But uh, when it states servants, I don't take it as as, uh, slavery and slaves because I think a lot of Hebrews... And this is just my opinion. When they say, oh, they will be our servants and everything's going to reverse, like slave, they're going to enter into a slavery like that was done to our ancestors here in America and South America and different places. I mean, a servant, technically, anybody who works with somebody is a servant. Because just like Abraham had a bunch of servants, but they were not slaves. They just worked for him. And... You know, it's no different than a corporation or if I had a business and I hire employees, all those employees are servants to me. I'm paying them to do a service for me. So I don't I don't think that we're going to even if it says they were to be servants, I don't think it's going to be inhuman like our ancestors was done back in the days. I just think it's just be businesses we have and we employ some of them. Yeah, well the only thing about it is uh I think what what is happening uh, with the word slave is, I don't think nobody want to use that word because it has a connotation. True. But a servant is still a slave. Yeah. That's that's what he is. You know, yeah. just like when you take uh, people got big enterprises and stuff, uh, they get most of the money and, and they give the peanuts, you know, uh, to their employees, but they get most of the money. Yeah. But the ones that get the peanuts, they're the, they're the slaves. It's just like if you put an ad in the paper or uh put online that you need a servant to come to your house or or a homemaker or something to come to your house and clean. Mm-hmm. You know, and the person who does cleaning work, they would they would they would go. Okay. Yeah. They probably say, well, you know, that's not my line. But if you put in the same article, we need a slave to come to our house <laughs> to clean and to do that. Person look at that and say, you calling me a slave? I'm not gonna work for you. But actually, even if you're a servant or a homemaker, you're still a slave, but he just didn't call you one. Yeah. So you're going by the title that he didn't call you a slave, but yet and still you're still doing slave work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my point being is this, is that slave slavery has gotten so much of a connotation of a bad connotation that when you hear that word, you're yeah. not seeing it in its meaning. You're seeing it as how ch- slaves were treated. Yeah, true. Just, just, just like in the when you read about an Apostle Paul's day, there were 
there were certain uh, slaves. Even Paul used the illustration. He said, you are slaves to who you yield yourself to. He said, if you yield yourself to Satan, you're Satan's slave. If you yield yourself to Yeshua, you're his slave. Yeah. Either way, you're a slave. So uh, in Apostle Paul day, if you read about a slave, a slave, uh, the way they were treated, they were treated with humane, just like yeah. the Romans when they got slaves. A lot of the slaves, they were, they were over their master's estate. They were good stewards. They were librarians. They were people of the government. They were still slaves, but they were not treated inhumane. And I think it's the inhumane treatment that has been attached to slavery that when you call a person a slave, they said, no, I don't want to be part of that. No, but you don't want to be a part. It's the inhumane tra- uh, treatment, True. not slavery, because slavery ain't had nothing to do with that. Slavery was just saying that you're working for somebody, but you don't want that inhumane treatment, and that's the thing that, you, that you're dealing with. That is true. Uh, we have a question and observation from a listener, mm-hmm. and it reads, Last week, Pastor said we should attend church on Sabbath. I find that so difficult now because of how the SDA organization is departing from sound biblical doctrine. One example is how the SDA organization has firmly adopted the Catholic Trinity. I just cannot accept that, and I want no part of it. I would rather study on my own and attend your podcast than being part of a false doctrine. We appreciate you tuning in. What advice do you have for me? Well, I... Uh... <laughs> First of all, I'm trying to see what context did I speak that in. Uh, I, to be upfront, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't remember saying that. But it's a possibility, since you heard it, that I must have said it. But I'm trying to put it in a context because we were speaking on the mark of the beast. Okay. Uh, uh- I think um, it might have been dealing with, uh, I think we were talking about socialization. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it might have been in the Let's Talk About It segment. Okay. 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 Well, let's let's, let's take it. Let us say I did say it. I I can't say I didn't because I see a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when it comes back to me, I might not have it in the context in which I meant it. Okay. But let's let's take the question. I, I, you know, people say in the Adventist church, okay, well, let me, let me put it this way. Uh, each person in the Adventist church, they may have Adventist teachings, but it doesn't mean that all the teachings in the Adventist church uh, are correct and not all of them are erroneous. But here's the point that I'm trying to get at is that uh, when we deal with any church, be it an Adventist church, a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, uh, the Reform Adventist church, or whatever, uh-huh. uh, if you if you're in any church, if you're in any church, uh, you're gonna find some error. You're gonna find some error. Okay, now most of the churches that I know, you know, they have accepted a Trinity even though I personally don't, okay? And the people who have accepted a trinity may be, may be still your friend, okay? Now, mm-hmm. if you look at the church, 
from the standpoint of a building that you go into and that you don't want to associate, that's one thing. But when you look at the church, the church is the people. And that's another issue because if you said you don't want to fellowship with a person that believes in that, then some of your friends and some of the people you go shopping with and some of the people that may be doing uh, some chores for you and that you like, they 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 may not necessarily uh, they they may believe in a trinity, but I don't think yet you would tell that person, you know, you can't fellowship with them. Now here's here's my point. My point is is that when you worship, be it with people who believe as you believe or don't believe, what is your purpose for being there? What is what is your purpose? Now, I know some people, they have even gone into Baptist church, Baptist churches, which they believe in the Trinity, and it may be, and they don't even keep a Sabbath, okay? And yet they would go into those churches, and I say, you know, why would you go? Well, I used to be a call porter, <laughs> and some call porters, when they go into churches, what they do, they, they already know they're going into error. I mean, that's that's a given, but their purpose of going there is to sit in some of their Sunday schools and stuff and dialogue with them and to put something on their mind that they themselves might look at and say, well, hey, I, I didn't see it from this standpoint. Uh-huh. Because sometimes it's hard for a person to see something from a standpoint. And if you say, I was born a Baptist, and I'm going to be a Baptist, and I'm going to die a Baptist, aren't you saying, I don't care what anybody says, I'm going to always be a Baptist. So as a call porter, you go in and set in these Sunday schools with the person who's saying, I'm going to be a Baptist no matter what. And you start putting some nuggets of truth in there. The same person that tell you, I ain't going to change. You may put a word or two in there. And that person say, wait a minute. I've been taught this all my life. But this brother or this sister, they bring in another angle. I need to look at that. And then some of the bare people who are looking at what you were saying, they'll go back to that pastor and say, well, you know, pastor, we heard. This guy in our Sunday school, he was just a visitor. He said this, and that might get the people to thinking. So when I say I can't worship with them, it's one thing not to worship with them in a building, but it's another thing when you're approaching them maybe at a one-on-one, on, one and then if you do go into their churches, what is your purpose? You know, because yeah. I've seen individuals, you know, they want to— uh, in so many words, people to believe as they believe. Mm-hmm. But only thing about it, they have not laid what I might say uh, the groundwork of being able to receive the seed that you have. Because a lot of people that I know in the Adventist church, they are good members, regular members, but they don't believe in no Trinity either. <laughs> but they are there because that's the best that they can find at the time. And maybe if some more seeds were sown, they may say, well, hey, maybe let me go over here. But it's not a black and white situation. Sometimes it's a gray area that the people that we are dealing with are the people that we are trying to help them to see truth and to alienate ourselves from them may not allow them the exposure that they need due to the fact that they are into what they are into, but they need somebody to break up the fallow ground to say that 
here's another way of looking at it. Isn't this why Carl Porter's put out literature to all types of people? Because if we separate from people altogether, we may say, well, do I need to separate my books and everything from them as well? No, you still give them your books and your literature so that even though we don't see eye to eye, we can say, hey, you know, this book has enlightened me on a different angle. So one has to look at what one is trying to accomplish. If you feel that, hey, I can't worship with them because they believe in a trinity or because they don't see the state of the dead, as I said, that when a person dies, they're dead, and their spirit is not floating around like in spiritism and stuff like that. And if they believe all of this and I can't worship with them, then what is my purpose? Is my purpose just to shine them or is my purpose to enlighten them? Because when I see the master walking on earth, uh, one of the main things they accused him of, he eateth with sinners. That was a main thing. And Elohim says, okay, you eat, <laughs> you say I eat with sinners. He said, well, John the Baptist, he came and he isolated himself from him and you called him a devil. Now I eat with the sinners and do all of this and you call me a devil. So Elohim was basically saying here, I came to save life, not to destroy it. And so as he, as he did that, he was able to get many people that ordinarily wouldn't have come to him if he had stayed away from them and that he had gotten a reputation that he only go to good folk. No, his reputation was he eateth with sinners, which meant that this man, he is sinful himself to be eat with sinners. That's how they looked at it. They say he eats with the uh, tax collectors. And you know, the tax collectors like Zacchaeus was one of the uh, most disdained persons of that profession by the Jews. They hated them because they was exploiting them for taxes. But Yeshua accepted them and he ate with them. He went with them. He did everything with these sinners that he could, but sin. He didn't sin. And when they saw that he had his best interest at hand, then they could listen to the truth and he should give them to them. So one has to design, number one, what is your purpose for worshiping there? If, if it's not of a wholesome value, you might say, hey, no, I can't worship there. But if you're saying I'm trying to win friends and influence people for the truth, then, you know, I can go. I can't just separate myself just because it's a building, because there are many people that I'm associating with who are, might not be in the building, but they believe the same things of the people who go to the building, but I'm still associating with them. So we have to we have to look at that and then give it to Elohim and then put those people on our prayer list and pray about it and ask Elohim the opportunity to be able to present to them the things that you feel that they should know. Yep. You know, I, I hear that, but you know, sometimes when those people, you know, things are going wrong, uh, you trying to point out some truth in scripture that people don't believe. And a lot of times those organizations will label you as a troublemaker. And they would probably, they would tell you, you, you don't believe like us. You just need to leave, you know? So sometimes well, it, it's, it is, you know, I see what you're saying, but sometimes, you know, it's difficult with these organized religions. They got their set standard. If you don't fit that mold, you need to be gone. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if, if that's the situation, even Yeshua said, but don't cast your pearls before the swine. But I'm mm -hmm. saying if that's the situation, you gone. But I'm saying I'm not I'm not seeing all situations being that. Mm -hmm. So I, my my whole thing is, 
if that is what you see, what is your purpose? Mm-hmm. What is your purpose? If your purpose is not with their purpose, then it's going to be a fork in the road. But I'm saying there are some instances that if I'm going there for a certain purpose, mm-hmm. then it may be very productive because every every uh, uh, person's religion doesn't mean that they're going to kick you out. Mm-hmm. You know, I've gone into I've gone into uh, uh, churches that uh, they they matter of fact, <laughs> I was up in New York one time. I was canvassing up there, and we went into a church. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the and the preacher, the preacher, he he blasted Adventists. He was a I think it was a Baptist church. He blasted them, you know. And we sat there and we listened to him. And then after service, we walked we walked up to the guy who blasted us. I think he was a guest speaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, we said, you know, we heard your sermon. <laughs> and so he looked at us and he smiled, shook our hands. He said, he said, you must have heard what I said about the Adventists, didn't you? Because he found out that we were Adventists, mm-hmm. you know. But it, it wasn't. It wasn't. It, it wasn't that we jumped on him for it, you know. But I think we established some kind of a rapport within the congregation, because mm-hmm. all of them, all of the people, you know, that if you don't believe what they believe, and I think most churches know that if you're a visitor, you don't believe what they believe, but they're not gonna kick you out. <laughs> Matter of fact, we having more churches now are becoming ecumenical, which means that. Churches that don't believe as you believe, you are still having fellowship with those churches. And so yeah. that still goes back to my premise. Uh, what are you trying to do in this world? What What, what are you trying to do? You, you're just going to separate just because they don't believe? Matter of fact, any church that you go into, you're going to find this, that you can say you are in this particular church, and I guess if you stay there long enough, you're going to find out that those people have individual beliefs along with the collective belief of their church of how they see things. Mm-hmm. And, and are you going to separate simply because y'all have a difference of a belief? And then when you look at the fact of John the Baptist, even the pen of inspiration says, and when you read in the Bible, it says that John the Baptist, he was actually looking for Yeshua to overcome the Roman government. He wasn't believing correctly because Yeshua was not coming to overthrow the Roman government. He was coming to be able to save individuals, and that did not mean overthrowing. He was trying to overthrow sin, not the Roman government. But John thought that he would get him out of prison by doing that. But that's not what he came for. So he was erroneously believing. So I'm saying in any organization, you're going to get people that do not see eye to eye. They always follow leaders. But you got to get some literature or something that you may can open their eyes to see the other side. So I got a question uh, to uh, kind of affair relates to this mm-hmm. in Revelation eighteen four, mm-hmm. when it says, "And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues." Is that possibly referencing the church? Yeah, you know, I think it's talking about the church, but I think when you look at Revelation eighteen, you're not dealing with. Uh, you, you're not dealing with with what we're talking about, uh, going in and out of a church and sitting down, you know, uh, worshiping with a, with a person that's got error. Mm-hmm. I think in Revelation 18, you're dealing with a system of worship. Mm-hmm. See, when you deal with a system, you're dealing with the Catholicism, Roman worship, which is a system of worship. And when you look at that system, the whole system is against, against Elohim. Elohim saying, I want you to come out from among that system of worship. Because I have my system, and I want you to be in that system. 
So I'm saying if I'm in his system of worship and I know what he wants me to worship, that's that's not talking to, talking to me about just going to Sunday uh, a, a, a Sunday a worship service or a Sabbath worship service that nobody believes in the state of the dead like I do or believe in eating healthy like I do. Just because uh, you know we may put emphasis on one thing, but there's a lot of things about our dad that we should be doing too. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are not, not even doing, doing that. So my, 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 my thing is this, are you in a system of worship? That's a difference. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a system, then I'm, I'm caught up with, well, what we've been talking about tomorrow, the beast, because of the fact that their whole system is going contrary to what, 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 what the covenant is saying in the Bible. Mm-hmm. But if I'm talking about just going in and out of a few doors of, of a church, what 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 am I what 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 about a worshiping that is different? Other than the fact that I know that the church, the whole system of the church, may not believe in the Trinity, not just that local church. Then I won't be involved, involved in that system. But if I'm just dealing with the local church uh, in trying to enlighten, either I can meet them on the street. I can meet them in their church or I can meet them in their home. So I, I personally see no problem with that. But I, I think it depends what you're looking at it for. Uh, I think you had said it earlier. Um, I think if you're looking at a socialization, it's different. But I think if you're looking at you uh, as a church, as an entity that you go to to learn and understand, um, a church that doesn't believe like you because you don't read and understand something in scripture and they're going against it. I think that's just an organization that you will probably say, I really don't want to be a part of because what are you really teaching me there? Because if I'm going to this institution and I'm trying to impart my wisdom on you and you're not feeding into it or even checking to understand what I'm trying to give you, it's just a socialization thing. It's not really a thing of learning. Yeah, well, I can understand that point, and I agree with the point. But the the, the opposition that I have with, with your point is is uh-huh. that in a congregation, do I do I think that everybody in that congregation thinks the same way? Oh yeah, no. You know, what I mean, you got hundreds of people. You know, I'm yeah. saying, even all right, let us say, for instance, I say, well, I ain't gonna even worship in that church. I ain't even bothered with that church because I know how they denomination thinks. Okay, so what is your methodology of trying to bring people to Yeshua? What is your methodology? Now, who are you going? Who are you trying to bring to Yeshua? Mm-hmm. Okay, now if you're not going to go to their churches and you're not going to do that, what what is the strategy that you got? Okay, now the only thing I can see is, okay, you say, well, I, I'm certainly not going to worship with them. Okay, fine, I give you that. That I think that is nothing wrong with that. But aren't those the same people that when you stand on the corner and pack out of track, aren't those the same people coming by you? I would think so. Because in a black, especially in a black community, I think a lot of people who are church, be a Jehovah Witness or Christian Science or whatever, they, they church somewhere. I may not go to their building, but I'm, I'm running up to the, but, I'm, but that, the same people. Hmm? That's a little bit, that's different though when, um, an organization is set up and you go to their church and you're trying to witness mm. and you're speaking contrary to what they're saying. Now, when you out on the street, 
it's anybody's game. Or if I come to your house, that's that's a little bit different too. Well, even if I come to your house, you can say yay or nay and kick me out still. But when you in an organization and you're going against contrary and they say you don't need to bring that here, but if I give it to you out in the street, that's different because we're not in that organization. To tell us you got to go, you can't say that here. So what what is what is the difference between the organization and the people who are part of the organization? Well, the organization is the uh, what's it? Well, I mean, people are part of it, of the organization and whatnot. But so, you, <laughs> so you're saying that even though I deal with a part of the organization, they're on the street, it's okay. But if I go into the organization, it's not okay. So what, what's the difference? You're still dealing with the organization. Well, I mean, still on this. Okay. It's like, say you're trying to say something to somebody in the church that's contrary to what the church, you're not just going to get up in the front of the congregation. Some people may and voice your displeasure and whatnot. You okay. may say it on the side to somebody, yeah, but what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is this: you're saying, as long as you got them outside and they ain't in the building, is okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, how many times that I've gone to funerals of people, they don't put the loved one in heaven, and you saying mm-hmm. don't don't go to that church to deal with that loved one, mm-hmm. but if I meet them on the street, it's okay. I don't have to go to that that funeral, you know, to give my condolence. Might be a good friend. But since I know that that system don't believe in the state of dead like I believe, I stay away from that church. I don't go to that church. And so I got to wait and meet him on the street and deal with the same person that I was seeing in the street in, in the church. I will deal with them individually. And you saying it's all right to deal with the same person that has the same belief if I would have been in the church with him as he is on the street. It's OK, but just don't go in that church with him. Well, I'm saying, OK. Just like you said with the state of the dead, mm-hmm. if you know that church believes like that, are you going to get up and say, no, you guys are wrong. He's not in heaven. You going to, you going to, you going to tell that to these people, tell that to the people. No, right that's, what in church. Saying. no huh? that's what you're saying. And nobody said that I would do that. That's what yeah, you no, just no, said. That's, that's what I'm saying. So no, no, what you are saying is this, uh-huh. this is what you're saying that every time I go to the church, then I got to stand up. And tell the people that they're wrong. I've oh no, 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 that. yeah, no. Well, that's what you, that's what I'm saying. That's when I said, "What is your purpose for being there?" Uh-huh. And then once you decide your purpose, you got to know what your methodology is. Uh-huh. The methodology is not always even. Even when I read the Desire of Ages, uh, when when she talks about Yeshua and when he saw error, she said a lot of times he he never said anything about when he, when he saw wrong. He he didn't say anything. You know what he did? Uh-huh. He just put light where there was darkness, and when people saw the light. Then they say, oh, I see, without him saying a word. So my point is, I didn't say I would go into the church and stand up and say, well, you're wrong. That's mm-hmm. your methodology, not mine. I never said that. I just said you're going into the place. Uh-huh. Now, if I'm going to minister in the place, then I might have been invited by a person or something like that. Just like one time I went to a, a first-day church, and when I got out of the church, uh, I was walking with two guys, and the guy said, Oh man, that that preacher, I don't know but they they may have been visitors too, but he said, "Oh, that preacher, didn't he preach?" I said, "Yeah, but I said uh the thing about it is is that uh he was 
uh, trying to get, you know, the preacher was preaching about it's okay to gamble. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I don't see why he would tell us, you know, you know, that it's okay to gamble. I mean, he had a pretty good discourse. The ministers was very good, but I'm saying he was talking about going and gambling. I know that I don't think Elo people, Elohim people should gamble. And I told these two guys that I was with, I said, we, I said, we got enough black businesses that we don't have to do a lot of gambling because when you've been in, when you start dealing with gambling, you're going to start dealing with prostitution. You're going to start dealing with drinking. And then when people lose all their money, then they got to go to counselors to get, get treatment for the council. I said, why would you gamble mm-hmm. when you got so many legitimate business? And I said, one of the biggest business that that is going on for black people is the church. The church is one of the biggest business out there. So, so, but so my point being is, is that what is your methodology of doing what you're doing, whether it's in the church or outside of church, because you can still offend the same person just by getting a, a individual and they can still be offended if you don't have the right methodology. But I, I think most people, you, you go into church for uh, one or two things. Either one is socialization or two, you, you're looking to learn. And if you, you, some of the things you're doing on your own learning conflicts the church, I think you're going to kind of pull away because uh, they're not teaching what you expect them to be teaching. No, you know? I don't expect me to be. Well, here's what here's my point. Mm-hmm. When I go into the church, I already really know what they're teaching. Yeah. Okay. So my my my, my point being is this. But I'm talking about like mm-hmm. you. You're different. You're a minister. You study the scriptures. But, yeah, but for an can, average person that's that's just going to church, uh, working towards the not some of the knowledge you have, I can see why they would say what they say. Yeah, but you can't that. you can't just put the question on me because I'm a minister. Uh-huh. I'm saying the, the question is a broad question. You know, I mean, you may look at a lot of things I might not do and a lot of things I might do. But what I'm saying, the question is to to each individual, because I've, I've, I've known uh, uh, people to go go into first day churches. And uh, matter of fact, when I was just before I got married, uh, it was a it was a it was a, it was a preacher that had a Catholic in his church. Mm-hmm. He had a Catholic come by his church. And he was preaching some hard things. And I'm saying, I wonder how this Catholic priest is, you know, this Catholic is, is extraordinary. So after service, it was the same minister that married my wife and I. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, and so I talked to him after service. I said, I said, the stuff that you were saying, I said, how did that Catholic guy receive? He said, I don't have to worry about him. He said, I've been giving him some studies. Uh-huh. So what I'm saying, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, there are some things that ministers do, but what, 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 I guess the basic point that I'm trying to trying to trying to say, how can I win somebody and I'm separating from them? Mm, okay. That text in that text in Revelation is talking about coming out of a system. Mm-hmm. You going into the system and trying to pull them out of there. But I'm saying it's your method. You're gonna still have a loving and a compassionate when you go to a funeral and, and, and I'm not gonna stand up in the funeral and say, Hey Pastor, you you know the dead ain't up there, because if they were up there, we all be dying and going up there. No, I'm not going to do no stuff like that. But wouldn't that person come come back and say, well, you know, I really thank you for going, you know, and coming and giving your condolence. Mm-hmm. And, and you might be able to sit down and say, well, you know, uh, have you ever thought that a lot of times when you hear people say when a person died, they go to heaven? And uh, he said, have you ever questioned that? Because they already done pronounced the person dead. Mm-hmm. So how, how are they in heaven? 
you know, you just asking a, a, a question. I don't think people get offended by that. But I think just that like the email we got from the listener mm-hmm. was in reference more to the organization than to dealing with one-on-one well, and all, because they mentioned about the organization as a whole, as opposed to just, you know, one-on-one. Yeah, but I, you what know. I'm saying, you're not, you're not dealing with the organization as a whole, but mm-hmm. what I'm saying, if you were doing that, you can confront uh, the leaders of the denomination, but the average, now if you want to deal with uh, the clergy and the lay person, then I can see, see you saying that since I'm not a, not a a clergy, I can't deal with the organization, but I can deal with the individual person. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying, even though the listener uh, uh, has written a question that they don't want to worship him, fine. I've said I have no problem with that. But what I'm saying is, isn't that the same person that you're trying to get to understand what you you understanding? But how can you do that if you separate it? Mm-hmm. That's just like me and you. Me and you might have a, a belief that we don't see eye to eye on. Okay, mm-hmm. but. Will we ever see eye to eye if I say, well, you know, I can't, I can't deal with you or your question. Mm-hmm. How, how would we ever get together to sit at the table and have the conversation? Well, I don't think it's uh, anything about socializing um, because I think that's far as in the most more than socializing. I think it's more of sitting under a minister and under an organization. Well, I shouldn't say minister. I should say organization sitting on an organization that is not about the full truth and you're still trying to learn. I think that's a little bit different than you're trying to spread the word of what you know and all in, in the organization being apprehensive to what you bring, because I think a lot of these organizations, they're not apprehensive. They don't want to change. They don't want to implement change. Well, that, that may be true, but what I'm saying, when you say the full truth, there, is there any church that has the full truth? I don't think so. Not okay. in my opinion. And then, and then, and then, when you talk about when you talk about the uh, the organization that is opposed uh, to what you, what 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 you're teaching, they wouldn't know what I teach until I till I taught them. True. So if I haven't got a chance to teach them, then how would they know? And then when you look at the uh, uh, the the, uh, the uh, churches that are out there, mm-hmm. when you say that when you look at the Presbyterian Church, that they've been practicing Presbyterian doctrine for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. the Baptist Church has been doing the same thing, the Adventist Church, the Methodist Church, the AME Church, they have been practicing for hundreds of years. So yeah. I already know by common sense that they ain't gonna change. That's what's out there. But those are the same people that. I need to give truth to her. So how do I give it if I'm standing off? The same people. And if a person doesn't have a church home, then they I don't have to worry about going to their church. I can just teach them uh, from where, the, where they are. But, I, but I'm saying majority of people that I think I know, they, mm-hmm. they got some church base. So let me ask this. Um, when doing an evangelistic crusade, would you go into the, go into a church trying to recruit those same people that you meet on the streets? Yeah, I've done that many times okay. on, on church. Sometimes we have evangelistic campaign. We go to the Sunday church. Mm-hmm. And matter of fact, we tell a minister, why don't you come down to our, you know, to our meeting? Mm-hmm. And I know one pastor, he not only invited a pastor to come to the meeting, but he baptized some of the, some of the members of the man's church 
And then he went to the minister and said, you know, so-and-so got baptized in my church and she keeps the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And we would hope that you can help her to keep the Sabbath. I mean, it's your methods, you know. I just saying the same world that we saying we can't worship with is the same world we're trying to trying to get into the church. Yeah. And I'm saying we have not accepted a system, but we have to go into the system to bring them out. If Yeshua said, well, look here, Father, they got a false way of worshiping down there. I can't go in there and integrate with them people down there. They, they just ain't going to see it. Mm-hmm. But he came right on down here, integrated with the system, but he didn't go along with the system. He changed the system. And for the ones who want to come out, they came out. And the ones who are going to stay, they stay. Okay. That's all I'm saying. But I'm not saying it's wrong not to worship with them. But I'm saying, what is your method and what is, and, and, and what is your purpose? Yeah. And I think the whole purpose of, of what Yeshua did, he says, I want you to be disciples. I want you to be fishers of men. And he didn't put no category on it. Okay, Pastor, uh, can you take us to the throne as we get ready to bring this one to a close? Mm-hmm. I love it, Father. We thank you again that we can dialogue and we can talk very candidly or have the Father about issues, how we see it and the questions or that we have, that as we bring it to you, that you would uh, take our minds to the cross and give us the mind of Yeshua and crucify our old man that the blood of Yeshua may go through our brains, O Heavenly Father, and to be able to give us the inspiration that we need and to be able to think clearly about the issues that we are confronted with, that we can be able to know that we are still in your covenant promises, doing it the way that you would have us to do it. Each individual may do it differently, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means, O Heavenly Father, that you have gifted us in different ways to be able to perform in a way, Lord, that would be advantageous to us. Now, Father, as we continue to study the mark of the beast, O Lord, and the seal of Elohim, that we may be able to see what you have in store for us if we do it the correct way. Have asked for Heavenly Father mentally, physically, and spiritually, and socially, O Heavenly Father, that we should align ourselves with your word as you have intended for Adam, that we can be according to your will. Now, Father, we ask that you would bless those who are having difficulties individually and collectively as a family those who are having problems with employment and being able to have a livelihood to be able to make a living, that I would be with them. Remember those who are sick and shed in, oh, Heavenly Father, they be with them. Remember those who have recently lost loved ones and relatives, that you would comfort their hearts with the comfort, oh, Heavenly Father, that he may come in, oh, Heavenly Father, and give them the peace that they have lost. And now, Fathers, we face a new week and get ready to, for a new challenge, that you would be with us. We thank you for the blessings of this week and what you have done for us and all of the blessings that you have given to us, that we may be able to shout it, give your name, the hallelujahs that you are due, because you only are worthy. Now, bless, keep God, direct each of us individually and collectively. And one day when you should come and wipe away sin, sorrow, and all of the iniquity and transgressions of this world and give us a new sanctified and holy life and a life that would measure with the life of Elohim throughout eternity, world without end, we are shouting, give you the glory for cause. You only are worthy. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. Know f- therefore that Yahuwah Eloheka is Elohim, the faithful El, which guards his covenant and mercy with them that love him and guard his commandments to a thousand generations. 
Until next week, Shalom.